Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. The subject I've been preaching on I, is a, a subject that I happen to do a lot of work and study in and, and resulted in my doctoral dissertation, as uh, Mario mentioned. And pretty much what I've done here is uh, in the series on faith, repentance, lordship, and discipleship is really the four chapters of the dissertation. Uh, go into a lot more depth and a lot more Bible passages in it. And um, when I wrote it, um, it was a controversial issue. It still is a controversial issue. When I wrote it, though, I wanted to write it in such a way that I, I had to make it technical and deep enough to satisfy my my um, readers, the professors, you know, and that included quoting Latin and and uh, in German and French and so forth uh, to impress them. But I wanted to write it in such a way that uh, it would be a helpful tool to anybody that wanted to eventually. And so I hopefully have succeeded to that. I'm well aware that most people write a doctoral dissertation. It gets set on the library shelf and nobody reads it. And all that work, three, three, four years of work, and nobody ever reads it. Many, many times that's how it happens. Through the generosity of another ministry, we were able to pub, uh, print this one up in this form and distribute it and uh, give it free to pastors at a pastor's conference, distribute it to Christian colleges and seminaries, and, and it's going around the world uh, through the website. And I was just real gratified by that, and I praise the Lord for letting him use it in that way. And uh, I get requests from people who are struggling with the issue, as I know that some of you have struggled with this whole issue. And so I'm, help, I'm glad I could be a help in that area. Tonight we want to talk about the issue itself of lordship and look at three passages chiefly that deal with the issue of lordship. I think we'll have a word of prayer before we begin. Our Father, we come before you today, grateful for a day of rest, a day of focusing on you, on worshiping you. We now submit to you our minds, our hearts, our emotions, all that we are. We lay it on the altar of sacrifice and ask that you be pleased and accepted. I pray, Father, that you would use our time together here this evening to sharpen us and to give us a deeper appreciation of who you are and what you have done for us. We do love you, Lord. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's called a heresy, a twisted gospel, a false gospel. Christianity Today said the whole issue is a volcanic issue. One writer said evangelicals are swelling the ranks of the deluded with a perverted gospel. Another, another author who wrote a book entitled Wrongly Dividing the Word of Truth accuses those who preach it of defecting from the gospel. What is this terrible heresy? Well, it is simply that faith in Jesus Christ saves us. Have you ever heard of anything so terrible? Let me read to you some more quotes that I use uh, in the dissertation. The Lord will not save those whom he cannot command. He will not divide his offices. You cannot believe on a half Christ. We take him for what he is, the anointed Savior and Lord, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. Another writer says he is Lord, and those who refuse him as Lord cannot use him as Savior. Everyone who receives him must surrender to his authority, for to say we receive Christ when, in fact, we reject his right to reign over us is utterly absurd. Another writer says, but we must also insist that any attempt to divorce Christ as Savior from Christ as Lord also perverts the gospel. For anyone who believes in a Savior who is not the Lord is not believing in the true Christ and is not regenerate. 
So those are some of the remarks made against those who say that we're saved by faith alone and Christ alone. I might point out that those remarks are inaccurate to begin with. We don't reject the lordship of Jesus Christ at all when we talk about his saving work. The fact is, when we talk about his saving work, we're doing just that. We're talking about his saving work. And lordship, we, we believe, is another issue. It's a Christian issue, really. So I want to basically explain the controversy a little bit, and what's, uh, just kind of define it for you. And then most of what we're going to do is go through three verses that are often used um, in the argument about Christ's lordship and his involvement in salvation. Now, what is uh, this view called lordship salvation? I've kind of been addressing it all the time I've been with you in the last three messages, but I've just never named it. I, I cho- I've chosen to be a positive in approach. I'd rather tell you the positive about what faith is and what repentance is and, and what discipleship is rather than, than to knock some other view. But um, the view called lordship salvation, which you've probably heard about, is the belief that Jesus Christ must be acknowledged as Lord and master of one's life as a part of your salvation. In other words, coming to Jesus and believing him involves surrendering to him as the master of your life, surrendering your whole life to him, and thus it's called lordship salvation. Unfortunately, many of those who teach that view call the opposite view, what we call the free grace view, they call it the no lordship position, which is kind of derogatory and unfair altogether. Um, they would say, and some of them would say, that the, that faith and believing is actually submission, that faith is obedience. And so if you believe it's kind of a package deal, then you will automatically obey because that's inherent in the word faith. Faith means to submit yourself. But um, if you, you can read more about this in, in dissertation, I'm sure that uh, Mario and Ed have done work in this. But the word believe does not at all mean that. It means to be persuaded of the truth of something so that we trust in it in a personal way. But um, it, has, it has nothing to do with submitting our lives in all the areas of our lives. That would confuse the gospel of grace, you see, with what we do or what we bargain with God with in a form of meriting or earning something. And so you see, it really is an important discussion because it infringes on what the gospel itself is. And uh, how exactly are we saved? And what is grace? Is grace free or is grace costly? But is, isn't costly grace a contradiction in terms? Of course it is. Free isn't, uh, grace isn't costly, it's free. And there's no such thing as cheap grace. It's free grace. That's the only kind of grace there is. Let's talk first of all about the meaning of Lord. <clears throat> when the word Lord is used in the New Testament, it usually translates the Old Testament word uh, for for God, which is Yahweh, which is the covenant name of the God of Israel. And um, so Lord in the New Testament usually refers to Yahweh, which was a term of deity. And it stood for more than just his rulership, which is the single thing that uh, these on the other side want to call it. They want to say that Lord means ruler. Well, it does mean that. But first of all, and always, Lord, as used in the New Testament, for Jesus implies his deity. Now, if we start there, then we have to say that Lord as deity really involves much more than just rulership. As deity, he's our creator. He's our owner. He's our sustainer. He's our judge. He's our redeemer. And we could go on and on. You see, so to say that you must submit to Jesus as Lord is really to say not just to submit to him as ruler, but to submit to him as creator, sustainer, 
Redeemer, judge, prophet, priest, king, and everything else that the title Lord implies because of Jesus' deity. The word Lord in the New Testament was used of a property owner as a title of respect. We say pretty much the same thing today. We call someone sir, which in the olden days was a way of saying sire or, you know, a lord. Uh, Even the word Lord is used in some countries today to address people of uh, stature, like in England, Lord uh, so-and-so. When it was in Jesus' day, Jesus was called, of course, Lord, and it obviously implied his deity, uh, but it also just became part of his title, a title of respect about who he was. Um, the, the word Christ, of course, had most of its significance to the Jewish people because Christ means Messiah. But for the Gentile, Christ didn't mean that very much because they didn't have the Messianic theology to, uh, as a background. And so the title Lord Jesus Christ, probably Lord had more significance for the Gentile because it implied for them deity, you see. Well, anyway, when we when we read the word Lord as anything in the New Testament, we want to look at the context and, and see what the context has to say. Rulership is only one subset of what Lord really means. Now, no one would argue that Jesus is Lord. Of course, he's Lord. Jesus couldn't be savior unless he was Lord. Unless he was God in the flesh, he couldn't have died and his sacrifice couldn't have covered you and I today, right? So that is not the issue. And to call, call this, our view, no lordship is derogatory and unfair, okay? So, of course, Jesus is Lord. The question is not whether he's Lord. The question is, what does it mean to believe in him? Does that mean to submit to him as Lord? And that is a, another question. Let's turn to three verses, one at a time that will uh, are often used <clears throat> to argue that we must surrender all of our life to him as Lord in order to be saved. The first is in Acts chapter 16, the verse that I started the series out with last Sunday morning. This is the situation where the Philippian jailer runs out, and he says, and listen carefully, in verse 30, he runs out from the earthquake in the jail, and he says to Paul and Silas, Verse 30, he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And we're going to get back to those words because they're significant. But verse 31, the answer is, which you know is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, of course, what the lordship position would say is, we read it like this, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And they would say that what Paul was saying to this jailer was that you need to believe on him as Lord and submit your life to him. Give him mastery and rulership of your whole life. Well, let's look at the passage a little more carefully. The first thing I would ask when we approach the passage is, where is the explicit demand for us to surrender our lives in this passage? If that indeed is the condition for salvation, where does Paul ask the jailer to submit his life? The only verb in his answer is the word believe, not submit, not surrender, not commit. It is believe. And believe means to be persuaded of the truth of something so that we trust in it. So there is no explicit demand at all in the passage. It has to be read in there by theology or somebody with an agenda. What would it mean? to the Gentile Roman jailer then to be told to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. As I said, I don't think that the word Christ had that much significance to him because it talked about the Messianic 
uh, position of Jesus. But the word Lord to a jailer probably implied Jesus's deity, the authority of someone who had the authority to save. And that's what the jailer, jailer needed to know is that there was someone in authority who could save him from his sins. And so Lord to him denoted certainly deity and the authority to save. Now, I want you to look at something else. <clears throat> Verse 34. It says, when the jailer had brought them, the apostles, into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in who? In God. Okay. What did he believe in? He believed in God. That shows you, right in the context, probably what he understood by the Lord Jesus Christ, that this was God, you see. He believed in God. Now, if the author of Acts wanted us to adopt the idea that the jailer was surrendering his life to Jesus as his master, he could have easily said he believed in the Lord or believed in the master. He could have used a lot of words, but he says he believed in God, which shows us, I think, the significance of the title Lord in verse 31. Look at something else. Or think of, let's just think about this. Here we have a pagan Roman jailer. He did not know anything about Jewish theology, probably. And yet, to, uh, to, to believe that he could make a, what I would call a mature Christian decision to submit to Jesus as the Lord of all of his life, and to make that a condition of salvation, is really incomprehensible. How could a pagan jailer, unfamiliar with Jewish theology, who only knows that he's a sinner, needs to be saved. How could he understand all the implications of turning your life over to Jesus as Lord? My friends, isn't that something that you and I are still learning about every day as a Christian? How can we expect somebody who is a, a total pagan to understand the implications of that and ask him to do that? It just doesn't make sense. But you know what the clincher is for me in this passage is in verse 30. You'll see verse 30 the jailer says to them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? That word sirs, you might want to underline. And you can connect that to the word Lord because it's the same word. It is the same word showing us the word in the Greek language is uh, kurios. That's the word for Lord. And what the jailer said was kurio, kurio, I believe, would be the plural form. And he's simply using the same term of respect for them as we use for Jesus when we call him the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, we know it means deity, but it shows us here that it's used as a term of respect, not necessarily implying that there is any submission attached to it. So uh, that to me is the clincher, verse 30, when he uses the very same term for them in the original language. Another passage we could look at is 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I might turn to 2 Corinthians. <clears throat> And verse 5 is sometimes quoted, and uh, it is used to say that the apostles preached that Jesus was the Lord and that we should submit to him. So we have 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5, and the apostle Paul says there, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, or Christ Jesus as Lord, some Bibles, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. Whether you read Christ Jesus the Lord or Christ Jesus as Lord doesn't make a big difference. What is Paul saying? Is he saying in this verse, in verse 5, that we're preaching that Jesus Christ must be Lord and ruler over everyone, or that everyone must submit themselves to him totally in order to be saved? Well, again, 
there's no explicit command here. There's no explicit statement that says that that's what they are preaching. To pre- preach Christ Jesus as Lord to the Apostle Paul is explained in the book of 1 Corinthians, where he says we preach Christ as crucified. And then he talks about Christ's death for our sins in chapter 15. And then he talks about Christ's resurrection. To preach Christ as Lord is to preach him as the crucified and risen Savior to Paul. Well, there's something else here, too. You might look at verse 4 and compare it to verse 4. I think the reason that Paul is emphasizing that Christ is Lord is because in verse 4, he says the minds, uh, he talks about the blind, the veil that we have before we are saved. And he says, whose minds the God of this age has blinded who do not believe, lest the light of the glory of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. You see, I think that what Paul is doing by saying that we preach Christ the Lord is he's drawing a contradiction with the God, who is Satan, of course, the God of this age, who blinds minds. And there is no one else who has the power to unveil the mind and to remove the darkness from an unsafe person's thinking, except for the Lord Jesus Christ, because he is Lord. And because he is God, he has greater power than the God of this age. In fact, if you look at verse 6, for it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, so he really is emphasizing the deity of Jesus Christ. In verse 6, he repeats the idea that it is only God who has the power to shine his light in our hearts and remove that dark veil. So yes, Paul says, we preach Christ Jesus the Lord. He is the one who has the power over Satan. He's the one who can remove the veil. But he's not saying, we preach Christ Jesus the Lord, therefore submit your whole lives to him. That's not at all what he's saying, neither implicitly nor explicitly. But the passage that probably causes the most confusion is in Romans chapter 10. This is a popular passage. And um, it is used, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, is used in a lot of gospel presentations. And um, it is used by the proponents of this lordship salvation to say that we must submit our lives to him. Let's read the verse and we'll state their argument. In verses 9 and 10, it says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes to righteousness and with the mouth, confession is made to salvation. Now here it says that you must confess and you must believe. Now, in their view, they would say, yes, you have to believe, but you also have to confess. And they would say, confess means to perhaps to speak up publicly about Jesus to others and confess him publicly. To some traditions and religions, that means to walk an aisle and we confess him when we come forward at an invitation. Some would say to confess him means to be baptized. And when we're baptized, we're showing the whole world that we believe in Jesus, and that would be our confession. Others would say, no, you just have to tell other people about who Jesus is and what you've done. And then there are others who would say to confess means to live your life in such a way that you show people that you've believed in Jesus as your savior. So you see, there's all these different ideas of confess, but all have to do with more than believe. Somehow we must demonstrate or prove that we believe by our confession. But is that what the word means? The word confess is made up of two words that means to say the same thing as or to agree is basically what it means. And um, literally to say the same thing as what he is saying 
is that you must acknowledge that Jesus, that the, you must not acknowledge the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart. Now, in this section of Romans, chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul is writing about the Jews' rejection of the gospel and how they have rejected his righteousness. Verse 3, for example, he says of his people, the Jews, they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. They've rejected the gospel, trying to establish their own righteousness. To confess the Lord Jesus, then, is to agree that Jesus is who he said he is, that he is God, the Lord, that he is the Messiah, and that he saves. So to confess means to agree, but the idea of agree means to believe, in my opinion. In fact, if you look carefully at verse 9 and 10, you'll see how uh, the words are alternated. In verse 9, it is confess and believe. In verse 10, it is believe and confess. And I think the inter intertangling of those words is simply a way of showing us that they really mean the same thing, that to confess is to believe. Furthermore, if you look at verse 11, he kind of draws those two ideas into one thought. In verse 11, he says, for the scriptures say, whoever believes on him should not be put to shame. So he doesn't even mention confess in verse 11. But yet in verse 13, he says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So you see, the words believe and confess and to call upon seem to be intertwined together. And I take it that the word confess simply means to agree that Jesus is who he says he is, which is the same as saying that I believe in him, believe in his name, believe in what he's done and who he is. Faith is an idea that comes out in, throughout the argument of the Apostle Paul, even in chapter 10, in verse 4, uh, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In verse 6, the righteousness of faith he talks about. We've seen verse 11, uh, verse 14, and verse 17 both talk about believing. In fact, the book of Romans goes to a greater extent than any other book to argue that it is through faith alone that we are saved. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through all of chapter 4, Paul develops that argument that it is not by works, but by faith that we're saved. And so it would be odd for him to come back later and say that we're saved by faith, but we also have to demonstrate that faith. It would go against everything that he's taught so far in the book of Romans. But I think the key to understanding the passage really has a lot to do with verse 8. In verse 8, the Apostle Paul is quoting the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 30 in verse 14. And there he quotes, verse 8, what does it say? The word is near you, even in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith, which we preach. I think what Paul is using, he's using this verse from Deuteronomy to show his Jewish brothers that salvation is closer to them than they think. They're working hard. They're struggling hard. They're trying to earn their salvation. And Paul says it's right there. It's right in your mouth. All you need to do is just say it. In other words, just agree. Just believe. It's that close. You don't have to go up to heaven, he says, verse 6. You don't have to go up to heaven and bring it down. You don't have to go into the abyss. It's right there. Just say it. Just agree. Just believe. I think the whole argument of the Apostle Paul in these verses is that salvation is right there. It is accessible to everyone. It is easily accessible to everyone. And yet that is such in such opposition to the view that says, no, Paul is making salvation hard here, and that you have to live out your life and follow Jesus and confess him before people in order to be saved. That's 
the totally opposite spirit of what Paul is actually trying to say. He's trying to say salvation is simple and accessible, not difficult and strenuous. You see, the Jews in verse 3 were trying to earn their own righteousness. And Paul's saying, it's not hard. You don't have to earn or work for it. It's right there. Just confess or agree that Jesus is who he said he is. That's faith. That's believing. Confess that he is Lord. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. And so here again, the argument is, well, you have to confess that he's Lord in the sense that you must submit to him. But here it is used as a title, and I believe a title of deity. A title of deity because for the Jews to understand that Jesus was deity would be to accept him as the Messiah and to believe in him. And so rulership would be implied, but so would everything else that comes in the title of Lord. Well, let me kind of summarize these arguments for you. I've got uh, several summaries and ways of looking at the argument. When we talk about salvation, the issue in salvation, we have to define the issue in salvation. In other words, what are we saved from? And what did Jesus come to do? And when we ask the question that way, the only answer is we have to be saved from sin And Jesus came to save us. And so one of the answers to this whole controversy is to ask the question, what is the issue in salvation? And Paul said, Jesus came to save sinners. That was his work. And as a savior, we must know him as savior. Jesus is Lord. He is God. But that is not the function that saves us. It is his saving work. He can save us because he's God, but we don't. Submit to him in order to be saved. We believe in him as our savior. It's dangerous to base theology on titles. And to develop a whole theology on titles. Because, you know, that really leads to kind of an open-ended situation. Because if we want to choose the one title of Jesus as Lord or ruler, what about everything else that that implies? You see, and I've already said this, but uh, what about the son of God? Do people need to believe that? that he's God in the flesh and that he was part of a Trinity and we have to explain the Trinity to him. What about the concept of the son of man, which in which Jesus identifies with our humanity? Do they have to understand that Jesus was a hundred percent man and, uh, and that he identified with humankind. What about Jesus as prophet? Do they have to understand how he was a spokesman for God and how he reflected God's will and word to us? Or Jesus as priest, do they have to understand the deep truths of the book of Hebrews that explains how he is our high priest who laid down the, the eternal sacrifice for us? Do we have to explain to him what a teacher is and the function of a teacher for somebody to be saved? Or just the name Jesus, which means Yahweh saves, his human name. What do they need to understand about that? So you see, it's kind of an open-ended thing. If we're going to say that Lord means ruler, we have to but we know that it means deity, we have to say, well, what else does deity imply? And does a person have to understand all of those things in order to be saved? And of course, the answer is no. And that's not always the way that the apostles describe Jesus anyway. Sometimes they just called him the man, the man from Nazareth or Jesus of Nazareth. Acts chapter eight, verse five, uh, the Philippian, uh, um, I mean, Philip preached Christ to them. So sometimes we just have an abbreviated form of his title. Paul said in Acts chapter 13, 38, through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. Paul's a heretic. 
He calls Jesus a man. No, he's just saying through this man, because the issue is salvation. And the issue, our need, is a savior. You see, I think what the error is, is sometimes, is to distinguish between the objective lordship of Jesus Christ and the subjective lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, you understand what I'm saying? The objective lordship is who he is. We know that Jesus is Lord, he is God. That's the objective lordship. That's his position. No matter what I do or don't do, he is Lord. The subjective side of that is how I respond to him. And of course, the lordship salvation, people want to bring that together. He is Lord, therefore we must submit to him to be saved. But you know, when we go through the Bible, we find many times that the position of Jesus Christ is developed before our submission to him is. And the fact that we have a new master is developed, for example, in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. Paul develops this whole idea that we have a new master in our union with Jesus Christ. But then when he comes to verse 11, he says, and now I want you to reckon yourselves or consider yourselves dead and, and, and so on. He talks about surrendering yourself as instruments for righteousness. Well, if Jesus is our new master, why do we need to surrender ourselves if it's a package deal? You see, but it's not a package deal. The Apostle Paul understood that we needed to continually submit ourselves to Jesus, who is the Lord in his objective position. We need to subjectively submit ourselves to him. A person can call the president, President Clinton, and then turn around and blow him up with a bomb. You see, a title of respect, a title of position doesn't necessarily imply submission to the president. Now, I'm not going to get searched by the Secret Service for saying something like that, am I? That would be a terrible thing to do. I've been called Pastor Bing quite a bit this week. But if I were to say, uh, you know something, I don't like the carpet in here. I want to change the color carpet. Would you do it? Why not? I, I'm, I'm the pastor, right? That's my position. What's the problem with that argument? My title, but not here. <laughs> I'm not your pastor. Exactly. I don't mind you saying that I'm not your pastor. You're not under my authority, yet you call me Pastor Bing. You see, we can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who he is. But the importance of salvation is that we believe submission is a decision for the Christian, and it's a subjective decision. Here's another clincher for me. It's from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10. Look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10, and tell me who was calling Jesus Lord in that passage. Okay? Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 10, and you tell me who was calling Jesus Lord in that passage. Hebrews 1.10, and you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Who's, who's saying that? You have to go back to verse 8, really. God. It's God saying that. God the Father is calling God the Son Lord. But he can't be submitting to him. That doesn't make sense, right? You see, he's recognizing his objective position and not the subjective submission. You see, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ means to recognize who he is. It does not at all imply that we must submit our lives to him. Another, another way of summarizing the argument is to look at it a little bit theologically. And there is a problem if we confuse what we call justification and sanctification. Justification means to be declared righteous. Sanctification means to become righteous in a process. 
And part of the problem with this whole controversy is that sanctification is being merged with justification. The condition for justification is to believe in Jesus as our Savior. The condition for sanctification is to submit to him as Lord and to follow him and to obey his commands and many, many other things. And what, what we do is if we say that we have to do that in order to be saved, we've taken sanctification and merged it with justification. And that's poor theology and very confusing to people. That's getting the cart before the horse, you see, to confuse works with our salvation. But I, I say it's not really getting the cart before the horse, it's putting wheels on the horse, because you're kind of blending them both together into some ugly hybrid is what actually results there. Besides that, you and I know Christians, genuine Christians who were saved, who aren't always obedient, right? You see, the Bible has examples of that. Even Peter himself was a, a, a fellow who had all this problem of, of consistently obeying the Lord. Even in the book of Galatians, Paul has to rebuke him. Joseph of Arimathea was called a disciple, but secretly. He was a secret disciple. Nicodemus evidently was a believer because he helped bury Jesus and at the end of the book, but we, we kind of take it he was a believer, but he was kind of hiding out still. In Acts chapter 19, you have the Ephesians who were burning their books of sorcery. Well, so what? That was two years after Paul converted them. They're burning their books on sorcery. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you have believers who abuse the Lord's Supper, and Paul says many of you have slept because of that. In other words, died. You see, so they continued in sin right to the point of their death. In fact, it caused their death. Ananias and Sapphira, and we could go on and on. There are many examples of believers who were less than committed to Jesus as their Lord, but yet they knew him as Savior. And you and I know what it means to follow Jesus. So it's, an, it's a struggle every day. And if we make that a condition for salvation, one of the big problems with this view is how can you ever be sure that you're saved? And I guess that's why I'm so passionate about it and I've spent my time writing on it and preaching on it is because I see good, sincere believers in God who want to please him. I see them being confused every day. I had a young lady come back uh, to my church. Uh, she's in our church. She went to a Bible study outside the church and she comes back. She gives me, actually, she called me on the phone and she said, I'm so confused. I, I went to this Bible study and they said, unless I did this and this and this and this, I'm not a Christian. And she was about at the point of tears. She said, but then I remember, I was so confused, but then I remembered what you taught us. It made me feel so good. But that's just one illustration among many, many. There are so many people out there who are told, unless you are submissive to your husband, you can't be a Christian. Unless you're out there winning people to Christ, you can't be a Christian. Unless you're walking with the Lord faithfully, you can't be a Christian. Unless you're reading your Bible, you can't be a Christian. That's not what the Bible says about our salvation. Grace is absolutely free. We don't bargain with God. God doesn't pay debts. He gives gifts. And I think the amazing thing that makes it so hard for people to understand and believe this is that grace is absolutely free. And it's almost too good. It is too good to be true. Almost too good to be true. It is true. But we want to think it's too good to be true. We must do something. We must make a promise or a commitment or surrender something. No. What did the thief on the cross have to promise Jesus? Nothing he could promise, was there? He was saved on the basis of his faith alone. Now, having said all that, I want to say that when we are saved, there should be an implicit inherent recognition 
that if God sent Jesus, his son, to save me, then I certainly should do something for him. But that's a response, not a requirement for salvation. We'll see. And so when somebody believes on Jesus as Savior, sometimes people in the very same instant that they believe in Jesus as Savior, they do surrender to him as Lord because they recognize all that he's done and out of instant gratitude, they do that. And so it's indistinguishable from their salvation in that sense. But friends, I can tell you about people too who have gone for years knowing Jesus as Savior as well as anyone else I know and confessing him in the right words and terms and theology, but not really having a life that lines up to it for many years later. I can tell you about a friend of mine who I believe was genuinely saved. We were in a discipleship class together. We were studying about the person of Jesus Christ in this one class shortly after his salvation. And he said to me after the class, he says, gee, I didn't know Jesus was God. He said, I didn't know Jesus was God. Can a person be saved without knowing Jesus is God? Well, that's a tricky one. I think a person should know that Jesus is God. I think you're inconsistent if you don't. But I have no doubt that this fellow was saved, but he was growing in his understanding. Now, how could he submit to Jesus as Lord if he didn't even know that that was true of him? So to be consistent in our salvation, we should trust him as our Savior and surrender to him as our Lord after that, because that's just being consistent because of all he's done for us. But, you know, we as Christians are notoriously inconsistent, aren't we? We're inconsistent. All sin is inconsistent. But the only command for the unbeliever, let's be very clear about this, the only command for the unbeliever is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The commands for the Christian are many, hundreds or thousands, after we become a believer. But the command for the unbeliever, the only command that they can obey to please God is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And as long as they do not believe, They are defying the command of the God of heaven. To live in unbelief is to defy the master of the universe. Well, Jesus is Lord. Of course he's Lord. And of course we should surrender to him. And we should do it the very instant we come to know him as Savior. But to require that of an unbeliever who knows nothing about the Bible, know nothing about theology, may know nothing about Jesus other than that he wants to save them, is to confuse the gospel and to confuse good people with, with a twisted truth. Thank you for listening. For more resources or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace.org at gracelife.org. See you next time.